Good morning. morning. If you've not met before, my name is Matthew Eichard, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors of the church alongside Steve. Thank you for your leadership in this morning's service, Steve. It's always an honor to serve alongside you. Steve did mention earlier in our service that we're going to be continuing this morning our new sermon series in Isaiah entitled, Behold Your God. So I'd ask that you would take your Bibles now and join me in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40, and in just a few moments, I'll begin our reading for the day in verse 12. As you're finding your way there, uh, I'll take just a, a moment of personal privilege uh, to, uh, to tell you that I'm a little maybe emotionally compromised this morning. Uh, over the past two weeks, Rachel and I have had the privilege of... Uh, being witnesses to two weddings of, of covenant daughters of this church, and uh, that's just brought back a lot of memory for me and the 10 years that, that the Lord has been good to give us here with you at Clemson Prez. Uh, as we find our way to Isaiah chapter 40, uh, I trust that we will find great encouragement not only in this passage of Scripture, but in the unchanging character of our wonderful, constant, eternal God. This is now God's Word for you and for me, and I trust again we will submit ourselves to it and be encouraged by it. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust." Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains." He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see, who created these? Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name? By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one 
is missing. Pray with me again. Heavenly Father, as we come now to look at your word, we pray that we would be transformed, that we would be changed, that we would be convicted, that we would be comforted. God, we pray that your spirit would be at work in our midst, that Lord, we as individuals, that we as a community would take on more and more the likeness of our Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray today as we look at this passage from Isaiah, that, Lord, we would not be overwhelmed by the number of pictures or the number of questions, but, Lord, that we would be overwhelmed by you. Lord, we pray all these things now in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I think we all have to recognize that the past year and a half to two years have been different. Disjointed, confusing, difficult, maybe even a bit contentious, years full of fear and many questions. If you're like me, years perhaps even full of doubt and maybe a little anger. You may not know this, but over the course of those two years, I've taken on more active responsibility in our children's ministry alongside Molly Snipes, our children's ministry director. It all started in October of 2020. I was volunteered to help with the music ministry. To be honest, I was maybe a little reluctant, maybe even a little bitter. But week by week, moment by moment, something marvelous took place. My heart softened. My joy built. My confidence in the Lord himself was bolstered. How? By children singing the gospel to me every single week. Someone once said that the soul is healed by being with children, and I think they're right. Every week, those kids would gather with smiles on their faces, with boundless energy. And as they became more familiar with me, I noticed that they got closer and closer and closer to me. And we would sing, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there is nothing my God cannot do. You may have recognized it even as I read here in Isaiah 40. We are going to talk about a God who is big and mighty. About a God who is present with us as his people. And I trust that today as we move forward, even through this week as we move forward, that we as his people will be encouraged by his character and by his presence. As we work our way through this passage, I do want to say a few things to kind of set the context or to set the scene for us. You'll notice that the majority of what I read talks about the transcendence of God, that he is big, that he is other than, that he exists outside of our universe, and that for us as his people, that is in fact a good thing. But in all of this language about God's transcendence or otherness, 
I want to make sure that we don't miss the immediate context of these verses. Look again with me at verse 11. What does it say? He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Verse 11 is not about God's transcendence, but about His imminence, His nearness, His fatherly, shepherdly care for His people. And so as we look about, at all of this information about God's character, about His size, His power, His marvelousness, let's not lose the fact that God is also one who draws near. Let us understand that His transcendence is being contrasted with and bolstering His eminence in this passage. Second, by way of context, I want us to make note that this passage is really shaped by a lot of questions. You probably heard them as I read. There's also a lot of measurements and a lot of comparisons. Keep those categories in mind as we work through these verses together. One final note that I want to to make for you is that God Himself is referred to in this passage as the Holy One. It's there in verse 25 near the end of the reading. Now when we think about God as the Holy One, it's appropriate, entirely appropriate, to understand that He is a God of righteousness, a God of moral purity. But the concept here is actually much broader than that. As we look at the Holy One together, we need to understand that God is set apart. He, in His character, in His being, is wholly unique. He is, in fact, other. And that for us as His covenant people is a good thing. Perhaps even the very best thing. If you're following along this morning, you may notice in your bulletin that there are six points to this sermon. Fear not. We'll be taking these really as, as quick hitters, because that's the way they're intended in this passage. The prophet Isaiah, in some ways, is, is building a, a defense for God's character, or giving us an, an, an interpretation or an understanding of God's character that is meant to lead us ultimately to one great point of application. And so that's really what we're going to do today. Look at each of these things in turn, and then understand together, I trust by God's grace, where God is leading us as His people. So first, in verse 12, we notice together that God is, in fact, the Holy One is greater than our world. If you look back at verse 12, you notice that there, again, is a lot of measurement language here. God is described as holding the waters in the hollow of His hand. I don't know about you, but I can't really hold a lot of water in the hollow of my hand. But that's exactly the point. That God Himself, if we were to picture Him in sheer size, is capable of taking all of the waters of the earth, from the oceans, the lakes, the ponds, the tributaries, and holding them there in His hand. This measurement, this wonder language continues when he says that he marked off the heavens with a span. That's the measurement between your thumb and your pinky finger. God says, understand who I am and what I am really like. As you look at the power, the majesty, 
the expanse of the heavens. I can measure them with one hand. He continues with again a a look at our world and saying that the dust of the earth and the mountains are measured in the scales and in the balance. As we cook in our homes, we often measure ingredients. Rachel and I love, love the Great British Baking Show. I perhaps more than she does. We've noticed that in Britain they tend to, to bake by weight. They actually weigh everything out on a small scale. It's as if God is, is, is working with something that small and that trivial with all of the, the earth that makes up our world. He says it is, it is but a scale, something scalable to, to, to me. The big point here in verse 12 as we really get kicked off is that the entire known world to us as human beings to us as the stewards of creation, to those of us who are image bearers. We are to understand that the entire world to God is something that rests easily, simply, under His scope and His power. Like perhaps many of you, every so often I'll fall down a rabbit hole on the internet This happened over Christmas vacation, and somehow I ended up looking at Shaquille O'Neal compared to everyday objects. Not sure how I got there, but if you have time, maybe make time to do this, I don't know, just just Google that, Shaquille O'Neal with everyday objects. He, He makes everything he's around look like nothing. My favorite one, he's holding a donut, and it literally fit. I mean, it's, how? God is saying, that doesn't even begin to describe my size, my power, my might, the wonder that you are to behold me with. Second, the Holy One is greater than our wisdom. This is verses 13 and 14. The big idea here is that as human beings, we cannot measure, you'll notice the word there in verse 13, literally it means we cannot begin to direct or to tell the Spirit of Yahweh, the eternal covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, anything. We don't get to serve as His counselor or His teacher. Look again at verse 14. Whom did he, the Spirit of the Lord, consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Quite frankly, God does not need either our moral instruction or our practical instruction. There is nothing that we can teach God Nothing about our daily lives. Nothing about the workings of our world. In fact, this really blow your mind if you begin to think about it. God is free not only to understand our world, but to change the nature of our world to fit His divine plan. In layman's terms, God doesn't need Google. I have an old Jeep. I love working on it. 
You might see me tooling around in it. I usually have a great big smile on my face. In fact, Rachel will tell me every time I come home after driving my Jeep, my stress level has just plummeted. The great thing about owning an old car in 2022 now is that you can Google everything. You can find the parts. You can find the wisdom. You can know God doesn't need Google to understand me, to understand you, to understand your circumstances, to understand what is best. He is God. And wisdom is the very nature of his character. Third, the Holy One is greater than our nations. Our nations. Verse 15. As we continue forward, you'll notice that that there's kind of a a growing sense of comparison here. That God is, is moving us through different categories to help us understand that the things that we think are great, the things that we think are most important, the things that we typically lean on or look to for encouragement, for hope, for life, are nothing compared to Him. And so we've moved first from the natural world itself, the waters, the earth, the heavens. We've moved through this idea of wisdom or what we can know, what we can learn, how we can be enlightened, and now we look at the greatness of nations compared to God. Verse 15 gives us more comparison language. The nations are like a drop from a bucket. Familiar language, they are accounted as dust on the scales. He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Then in verse 16, we we actually get a direct shout-out to the nation of Lebanon. If you don't know anything about Lebanon in the ancient Near East, it was renowned for its cedar forests. Other nations would actually take this wood to do their most ornate, important work. Look at the way God describes himself in comparison to the greatness of the forests of Lebanon. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. God says, take all of it, all of it. Take every tree, every every scrubby brush, build a fire, take every animal, sacrifice them, put them on the altar. That sacrifice would not be sufficient to lift up the praise, the honor, the worship, the greatness of my name and my character. But then we get something of an ultimate statement in verse 17 as we consider the greatness of the nations compared to God. All the nations are as nothing before Him. They are accounted by Him as nothing and emptiness. If you've read through the Bible, in fact, if you have embarked on perhaps on even a reading plan this year, many of you may be in the book of Genesis right now, that idea of of nothingness and emptiness should, should actually sound a little familiar to you then. That's the same word that's used in Genesis 1 2 to describe the world pre creation. So so God is saying about the nations, listen. Compared to me, the greatest nations of the earth may as well not even exist at all. Not not just that they don't exist as a nation, they don't exist in the world. They are nothing. Emptiness. Zero with a ring rubbed out. 
Now, as we think about the context of Isaiah 40, that statement really matters. Why? Because Isaiah has spent the majority of this book building a case against God's covenant people and telling them that they will suffer, they will be disciplined through the invasion of a foreign army. Babylon is on the way. Babylon was not to be messed with. They were a powerful, cruel people. Isaiah, earlier in his ministry, watched the northern kingdom of Israel be invaded by Assyria. Again, a large, powerful, cruel nation. God says, understand something very clearly. As I begin to work for your eternal salvation, as I remember my covenant promises to you, the great nations of the earth will not stand in my way. They are nothing and emptiness. See, we're already halfway through those six points. We're going to make it. So the Holy One, He's greater than our world. He is greater than our wisdom. He is greater than our nations, including the United States of America. The Holy One is also greater than our gods. The majesty of God that's unfolding here in Isaiah 40, it leads Isaiah, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to ask a question. It's in verse 18. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare him with? If he is greater than our world, and he is. If he is greater than our wisdom, and he is. If he is greater than our nations, and he is. Then what in the world can we even begin to compare God with? We really have two options here. The first is idols. The gods of the peoples. (laughs) You, You probably pick up on the sense of humor that begins to develop in verse 19. It's just a short, an idol? Are you kidding me? Are you serious? Says Isaiah. Just think about what an idol is. It's something made from creation that we attempt to worship, assign meaning to, that we have to buy, that we have to make. The language here is actually quite humorous. It says, okay, let's think about an idol for a minute. A craftsman casts it, then a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. So idols can be impressive, they can be costly, they can take time to make, unless you can't afford one. Then you can just find a really nice piece of wood, take what money you have, afford that one, and, and just to make sure it's a good idol, you can have somebody make sure that it's bottom heavy so that it stands up well. I see some of you laughing. That's the point. This is a ridiculous process that plays out time and time and time again in the course of human history, in the course of Israel's history. One living example we have of this is actually in 1 Kings 18. Some of you will remember the story where Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal. 
The Baals were one of the most popular gods in the ancient Near East and one that the people of Israel often followed after. Elijah presents the prophets of Baal with really a challenge. I tell you what, you, you get a sacrifice, you find an altar, I'll get a sacrifice, I'll find an altar, and we'll see which God is real. In fact, you get to go first. So all the prophets of Baal, there were hundreds of them, they make their sacrifice, they lay it out on the altar, and they are pleading with Baal, really the Baals, to do something in that moment, to show themselves, to, to evidence their power in the midst of Israel. Guess what? Nothing happens. Now, that would be laughable enough, but, but Elijah does not miss an opportunity. He says, hey, hey, how's it going, guys? I notice nothing's really happening. Maybe your God is lost in thought. Oh, no, I've got it. Maybe your God went to the bathroom, and he's relieving himself. So he's occupied, literally. Maybe he went on a journey, so he's not at home. I mean, we read this, and we're like, man, Elijah, cut him a break. They're trying hard, but... It's the same point we have here in Isaiah 40. When, when we give ourselves over to the worship of other gods, when we try to find our hope in idols, not just the bales, but our bank accounts, all those things we listed in the confession of sin earlier today, there's a sense in which, in a pitiful way, it's actually a laughable practice on our part. And God wants us to understand that He is more than the gods that we choose to worship. He's the God that we must worship and the God that we can worship. Fifth, we see that the Holy One is also greater than our rulers. Greater than our greatest men and our greatest women of history. This is kind of the, the second option of that comparison question. Okay, if idols are not going to work, if your man-made gods are, are not going to be sufficient, then let's talk about the greatest among you. What about your princes or your rulers? Look at verse 22. This is talking about God. It says, He sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Now again, if you're familiar with your Bible, you've actually seen that comparison before. When the spies are sent into the promised land to survey the goodness that God had prepared for his people, they run into the inhabitants of the land, they come back and give a report, and what do they say? It's flowing with milk and honey. It's amazing. It's got everything we need but the people there are huge. We felt like grasshoppers before them. I've actually had this experience in real time. I remember one time I was given the privilege of being called over to the football facility uh, for a luncheon. And uh, I was kind of at this part where you order lunch, and uh, the person I was visiting for lunch said, hey, I, I want you to meet someone. And I, I just got tapped on the shoulder because I was facing the menu. I turned around, and some of you will remember Dexter Lawrence, who played for Clemson several years ago, now plays, I think, for the New York Giants. 
he was standing there, and, and I was introduced to him. And I've never thought of myself as a particularly small man, but he said, it's nice to meet you, put out his hand, and he shook my hand. And it literally was this experience like my entire arm from the elbow down had just disappeared. And my next thought was, I could not imagine being hit by you full force. I would cease to exist. Strength-wise, that is a great man. But God says here, as, you look at the, as he looks at the inhabitants of the earth, all of them are like grasshoppers. All people, the greatest, the strongest, the brightest, they are all like harmless bugs. Now, just, just to make sure we understand who we are before God, he actually gives us a second metaphor in verse 24. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. So here, it's not only that we're like insignificant, harmless bugs before God, but we, in all of our power, in all of our might, in all of our grandeur, in all of our wisdom, perhaps in all of our royalty, we're like a newly sprouted seed that can't even survive a strong wind, or like the fluff on the top of a dandelion that children enjoy blowing away. Now, as we think of this, that, points, that paints for us a very um, transient picture of humanity and the strength that we sometimes imagine ourselves to have, or the value that we often assign to the greatest among us. Just to get the point of cross, we see verse 23, which parallels a statement earlier in our passage. God brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Again, in comparison to them, rulers of the earth may as well not even exist. While Rachel and I were in seminary, we had the privilege of learning from Dr. John Currid, an Old Testament scholar. On more than one occasion, he would remind us of God's power by saying something like this. Where is Babylon? Where is Assyria? Where is once mighty Rome? Where is Genghis Khan? Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Caesar Augustus? They're all gone. Relegated to the pages of history. And all of their accomplishments, as great as they may be, cannot begin to compare to our living, present God. Finally, we see in this passage that the Holy One is greater than the entire created order itself. This is really the crescendo of this passage. We see repeated for us in verse 25 a familiar question from verse 18. But the person asking the question has actually changed. In verse 18, it's Isaiah saying, who can we begin to compare God to? And I don't know, rulers of the earth, no. In verse 25, who asked the question? God himself. Who will you liken me to? 
Who will you begin to compare me to? I I want us to to listen to that question, to let it kind of hang over us for a moment. Who is like our God? What comparison can we really begin to use? There isn't one. And that really is the big point for us. To help us understand, God gives us the final lesson in verse 26. He says, come outside with me for a moment. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Look at the heavens. Look at the stars, the planets, everything that you can behold in the night sky. Who created these? Who calls out that host by number? Calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power. Not one is missing. Now, when God gives this lesson, I had to do a little research here to make sure I understood. If we were to do this in a very dark place, and our world has a lot of light pollution that would not have existed in Isaiah's day, if we were to get into the darkest place possible, look up to the sky, to every angle of it, and to count our, the stars that we can see with the naked eye, that would be about 10,000 stars. And that's, a, that's a marvelous thing. To think that God could create 10,000 stars. To put every one of them in their place. To be intimately acquainted with them. That's what it means when he says, I called them out by name. Some of you may have seen these services that will let you name a star after a family member. Not to bust your bubble, but it's too late. They already have a name. God has given everyone a name. (laughs) We we would be wowed by thinking, wow, 10,000 stars. God put them all there. God knows them all by name. But here's the great thing about the progression of human history. Our, our wonder of God should actually be increasing over time. What we know now, at this moment, the best estimates that we have is that there are actually one septillion stars in the universe. That is one trillion times one trillion. So God says, okay, Every one of them that you will ever see, that you will ever understand, that you will ever be able, by some length of the imagination, to explore. I put it there. I created it. I know it by name. And by the way, not a single star in the heavens is missing. So the Holy One, He's greater than our world, than our wisdom, than our nations, than our gods, than our great princes and rulers of the earth. He is greater than the entire universe itself. What's the point? Why should we care? What difference does it make? Will you look with me just briefly at the passage that Steve preached on last week from the beginning of Isaiah 40? What's the very first word? In fact, what are the two very first words in that passage? Comfort. 
comfort my people. This passage goes on to say, your warfare is ended. Those are, those are some pretty big promises. God is going to apply eternal comfort. He, he's going to bring about everlasting peace. How is that possible? Because He is the Holy One. He is capable of doing all that He pleases and all that He desires. And nothing, nothing will stand in His way. This is the God who, yes, will end our warfare. The God who will pardon all our iniquities. The God who will calm our fears. The God who can and actually fully shepherd His people. That's His promise in verse 11. This morning, our best estimates is that there are about 7.5 billion people in the world. The last time I counted, that's less than a trillion times a trillion. If he knows the names of the stars in the heavens, guess what? He knows your name. If he has been present in every moment of human history, guess what? He's present now. If he can manipulate the natural world, if he has every ounce of wisdom in himself, he knows your circumstances. He knows how to apply balm to your soul. He knows how to shepherd you. There's something wonderful about this passage that's reflected in John chapter 10. Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, declares that he is the good shepherd of the sheep. That he will tend his flock. And he uses this marvelous picture to explain his work. He says, I have you where? In my hand. And no one will pluck you out. This morning, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what you are currently walking through in your life, and life is hard because of our sin, because of just the general brokenness of the world. Here's the encouragement of Isaiah 40 to each and every one of us who are looking to Christ by faith. He is greater. He is worthy. He is at work. He cares. And nothing that you do, nowhere you can go, can begin to distance you from His work as your shepherd. He is pursuing. He is loving. So today as His people, let us lean into that fatherly, loving care. Let us trust in His undying, unending character. And let us marvel at this great God that is ours. 
Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we consider these promises, we recognize that we as your people should be overcome. To think about all that you are and and all that you do. You, You truly, God, are beyond compare. God, I pray that in seeing you high and lifted up, that that we would not primarily this morning be intimidated by your presence in our lives, but that we would be comforted by it. That we would know that you are with us. You do care. And you are working for our good. God, strengthen our faith in you, even as we come now to the table together. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.